Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. I'm your host, Brenna Miller. And I'm your other host, Jessica Blissett. According to the World Health Organization, one million people died from dirty air last year in China, making it the deadliest country for outdoor air pollution. It's the world's largest coal consumer and the largest carbon dioxide emitter. Emissions from coal-powered industries and cars generate dense smog that has led Beijing to recently issue a pollution red alert that closed schools and factories and forced half of the private cars off the road in 23 cities. For a nation reliant on industrial production, however, this is not a permanent solution or even one making a sufficient dent in the clouds of smog choking Beijing and many other major cities. 16 of which top the World Health Organization's list of top 20 most polluted cities. At the same time, China leads the world in investment in renewable energy and is poised to become a leading exporter of mass-produced solar panels and windmills. So how do we reconcile these two divergent stories about China's environmental situation? What's the history of China's relationship with the environment? And what does its future hold? We're here with three historians to make sense of this seeming contradiction of a major carbon emitter and the world's leader in making and using green energy. From the University of Arizona, we have Dr. David A. Peets, a professor of modern Chinese history, UNESCO chair in environmental history in the Department of East Asian Studies, and director of the Global Studies Program. Hello. From Idaho State University, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication, Media, and Persuasion, specializing in visual rhetoric and Chinese environmental activism, we have Betsy Bruner. Thank you. With us, we have Ruth Mostern, an associate professor in the School of Social Sciences, Humanities, and Arts at the University of California, Merced, and soon to be an associate professor of world history at the University of Pittsburgh. She's a specialist in spatial and environmental history, focusing on imperial China and the world. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. It's our pleasure. So, uh, David, we hear a lot of news out of China about the environment. What are some of the key environmental issues facing the country today? Well, uh, you know, I think there are three major environmental challenges. The first has to do with air quality. The second has to do really with water uh, quantity and, and, and quality. And I think perhaps the third major environmental issue is, has to do with land, and particularly desertification of land in China's northwest region and north-central region. E- each and every one of them really are, uh, have economic consequences, they have health consequences, and they also have consequences really for social stability. Uh, just looking at perhaps the, the air quality issue to begin with. And certainly Beijing, uh, the city of Beijing has, I think, probably garnered the most attention for its air quality issues. But nonetheless, uh, you know, air quality uh, issues really pervade uh, China's large urban areas. And I think even it's fair to say even you know beyond those large urban areas. Um, but, you know, there have been... You know, there have been a variety of, of, of media reports about, you know, the, uh, really the unsafe quality of its air. I mean, even uh, uh, so unsafe that it is really considered to be um, uh, dangerous. Um, the, the, the principal source of China's air quality problems really have to do with, with coal, particularly coal-burning uh, electrical uh, plants. 
China burns something like half of the world's uh, coal consumption. Added to that is the issue of automotive use. In the past uh, 10 years or so, the number of China's automobiles is something like uh, quintupled. Um, and then affecting both urban and rural areas is, you know, is the issue of water depletion and, and water depollution or degradation. So it's estimated like 70% of China's uh, surface water is seriously degraded. And, and even um, groundwater supplies, uh, something like you know, over half or 60% of groundwater supplies under the major cities were considered to be um, bad uh, to very bad. So there is a real critical problem with the question of allocation between rural and urban constituencies. And, and of course, compounding that problem is uh, our questions of, of water quality as well. So I think yeah. that we often think of these kinds of changes as being a result of industrialization. Mm-hmm. Um, is this primarily an issue about China's industrialization since the Communist Revolution, or does it have a longer history as you see it? Yeah, well, I think it's, I think it's, it's both. I think that you know, the very acute problems that, you know, we've witnessed, um, and I guess I'm particularly referring to water issues here at the moment, those very acute problems that we've seen with with quantity and quality certainly have been um, egregiously aggravated um, since, uh, particularly during um, the reform period um, beginning from 1978. So the quickened pace of industrial development, urbanization, and agricultural intensification uh, during the reform period really were layered on top of long-run historical water management challenges that certainly predate the reform period going back to 1949 when China's water resources were uh, aggressively developed. But even well before that, particularly in North China, where supply uh, has always been uh, a critical issue as well as the the control of water, and so I think it's fair to say again that the pace of of degradation, if you will, and and acute water usage in the past thirty or forty years was layered on top of those traditional concerns. Um, so it really is a long term issue. That is to say, water allocation or effective water allocation, water control, that was very much a um, um, a major concern of of imperial governments and and then of course governments in the 20th century, both in terms of supplying adequate and reliable water supplies to to the agricultural, the rural sector um, in North China, and maintaining that kind of ecological equilibrium in North China was deemed for centuries to be very critically important to the. Um, to the to the social and political order in the rural areas, which ultimately had a, a great deal of input to the you know to the social and political political well-being of of the state in China. Can you um, describe in a little bit more detail exactly what the uh, relationship between the environment and political stability? and especially the Yellow River, your area of focus, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. was kind of in the pre-communist period. I mean, yeah. how, how exactly did these interactions operate? Sure. sure. Well, as I, as I think I'd mentioned, the state um, uh, throughout the imperial period in Chinese history had an acute awareness and really an overriding concern to maintain ecological equilibrium on the North China Plain. 
have to remember that the North China Plain has, uh, for a very long time, has really been uh, a critically important um, agricultural region for the state. And so the state, in turn, paid a great deal of attention on the hydraulic stability of the Yellow River. As I'm sure you know, the Yellow River um, represented a potential threat to social and economic well-being of the North China Plain region because of its propensity due to its high silt content, its propensity to um, raise its, its bed and to overflow its bank, uh, which uh, generated you know, large-scale flooding, which had quite destabilizing effects on uh, local society. And so the state, really from a very early uh, period, committed itself to maintaining the hydraulic uh, stability of the Yellow River system, which in practical terms meant you know, paying a great deal of attention to defense systems, to levees, to, uh, in some cases, reservoirs. Uh, and it was a commitment that the state necessarily had to maintain because any, you know, any lack of attention or any shortfall in investment would, would directly threaten the capacity of those defense systems to maintain the well-being of the, of the Yellow River hydraulic system. And so the state very much felt uh, its responsibility in terms of investment and um, providing sort of a moral framework uh, for uh, local elites and local officials in the North China Plain area to make sure that those defensive structures were uh, well-maintained in order to prevent uh, flooding and ultimately sort of hydraulic catastrophe that, again, uh, the point being here, again, the kind of social and political chaos that ecological instability on the North China Plain could engender represented a, you know, a, a, a very much a threat to the political order of, of imperial China. It strikes us that today China is going in these two directions simultaneously. On the one hand, on its way to being the world's largest producer of greenhouse gases, but at the same time, one of the largest producers of green power. So is this a paradox or a conundrum? I mean, how do we make sense of this seeming contradiction? Well, it's a great question. And I think there are, you know, are there perhaps a number of elements? Um, I think one of the fundamental challenges that um, that the state has faced over the past couple of decades is coming to some sort of uh, semblance of being able to manage at the local level industries that largely have avoided effective regulation from the center. So, for example, during the 1990s, the grand bargain that the Deng Xiaoping government led in China was a devolution of economic decision-making power uh, that enabled local governments to uh, really um, take a greater responsibility and role in economic decision-making and investment um, decisions. And that, and that resulted in an absolute proliferation of, of, of local industries. You know, there were the creation of these what were called township and village enterprises beginning in the 1990s. And by about 2000, 2005 or so, these small locally controlled enterprises contributed something like you know, up to 70% of China's 
GDP, but it was virtually impossible for the state to try and regulate these industries in a variety of sectors, but certainly environmental as well. By and large, those local uh, economic institutions um, had other priorities beyond uh, environmental regulation, and so, um, so I think you know the state up to this point uh, is is uh, and party are very very much aware of environmental issues. They would like to respond, I think, to uh, a growing set of concerns, both from rural and urban constituencies, about quality of life issues. But it has continued to struggle to be able to implement environmental an environmental regulatory scheme um, throughout China. But at the same time, you know, China has has certainly recognized, or investors in China have recognized that globally there is a you know there is an opportunity here to invest in in green technologies. Um, certainly, many of those have an international market. And so from an economic point of view, there is this trend over the past 20 years to see this as a lucrative investment opportunity. So it seems like there's a variety of pressures, both internal, external, economic. A- a- absolutely. And I, and, I, and I certainly, I mean, I think our, our tendency as, as observers from beyond is to think that there's a you know, high degree of recalcitrance by um, by the state and government to address Chinese environmental um, issues. It's, it's certainly a complicated regulatory environment, but at the same time, there is a keen recognition, I think, by political elites in China that, you know, that something has to be done, and there certainly have been, you know, administrative efforts to try and to impose a, a more effective regulatory environment in China, and I think part of the increasing pace towards this movement has certainly been advanced by the slowing of China's economy during the past couple of years. There's a great deal of sensitivity about, again, to political and social stability in China. And certainly pollution has provided a source of, of comment and criticism from, again, both rural and, and urban constituencies in China. So looking forward, uh, can and is China willing to curb its economic growth for health and environmental concerns? And what, in your estimation, are the realistic possibilities for international cooperation on climate change issues in the future? Yeah, gosh, I think we'll, we'll see, I guess, maybe is the, is the short answer. But, um, you know, the question about the state and party being willing to sacrifice a certain rate of economic growth I think is a very is a very tricky one, understandably for them. Certainly, economic growth has has you know really provided the foundation for the social compact. I think in in China over the past 20 years, and so I think understandably, given that the state is is very keen ab- uh, about maintaining healthy economic growth, but of course that has to be balanced with its concerns about um, you know political and social stability. As it is, as those forces are shaped by the environment. So, I think looking forward, you really have pointed to a very delicate balance that the state has to uh, negotiate. I think oftentimes the tendency, not just in China, but in a lot of contexts 
around the world is to think of those as being mutually exclusive. And I think there is a greater tendency within China to think more inclusively about economic growth not necessarily being in opposition to environmental uh, protection. China has indicated a real sense of willingness to participate in international uh, accords, perhaps the most recent example of that is it, its agreement to abide by the uh, Paris Climate Accords, uh, as has the United States. Uh, but again, um, perhaps similar to the United States, we'll see what the future holds in terms of both a consistent hewing to those agreements and and also you know, practical measures taking within the, uh, within the domestic uh, polity to, in fact, abide by those accords. You know, from 30,000 feet up, I think the prospects for, you know, greater environmental uh, protection and, and mediation efforts in China, you know, it is, it is I think, very much uh, a kind of a good news, bad news kind of thing. Uh, it is, you know, that, that problems continue, but that, you know, there have been uh, indications of a greater willingness by the state and party to address these problems, but there are just very, very difficult issues to try and negotiate these sort of paths between, you know, economic growth and environmental protection that, that there are very strong interests in both of them and really the challenge is to try and integrate those into a coherent set of policies, you know, that ultimately from the individual point of view can mitigate these environmental issues that are very much one component of the reality of, of living in China these days, particularly in urban areas. Betsy. What are the main environmental issues in China today, and how transparent are environmental issues in China? Do people know a lot about environmental dangers? I think that the biggest environmental issues that they're facing today are air pollution, water pollution, and soil pollution. And these are translating into severe health problems, including all different kinds of throat, stomach, cancers, um, water scarcity, food safety issues, and so forth. For example, according to one report, up to 40% of China's rivers were seriously polluted and 20% were so polluted you weren't even allowed to come into contact with them. In another study, there were 5,000 soil samples taken and roughly a quarter of them turned out to be polluted. And so these issues are becoming very apparent and transparent because people are feeling the effects. You know, I have a friend that in his 20s had to have surgery because he had throat cancer, and this is something that affected half of his family because of water pollution. So the issues are definitely air, soil, and water pollution, but the transparency is somewhat inconsistent and complicated. So if you take air pollution, for example, that's something that we're familiar with in the U.S. because we see tons of international coverage every time, you know, Beijing has horrible airpocalypse, we see pictures and we, we hear about it on the news. So air pollution is something that people actually can see. Um, it can't be disguised. It's not just, you know, at a location where a river is. Mm -hmm. um, it, it receives lots of attention. We see posts on, on social media about it from people in China, from visitors to China. And it's gotten so bad that it's drawn protests in places like Chengdu in 2016. We see people being aware of it. Um, we also saw the documentary that Jing Chai made called Under the Dome that 
within 24 hours had 14 million views on Yoku and 35 million additional views on social media. Wow. But then it was censored. So we see it, but then we also see the government trying to control the reaction to it so that it doesn't turn into massive social unrest because that's something that they fear a great deal and, you know, don't want to occur. But then also in terms of, you know, even though the issue of air pollution is does receive a lot of coverage and people are very aware of it, I still, when I'm in cities, I'll see people wearing masks and every year there's more people wearing them, but there's also always more people not wearing them than wearing them. In that way, it seems very complicated. They seem to know about the environmental dangers, but the precautionary actions sometimes are inconsistent or not as great as they should be considering the dangers that they're facing. And I assume the government isn't promoting the use of masks or anything like that. Kind of complicated. So in places like Chengdu, during the recent protests, and in other places where they've been suspicious of or concerned about social unrest, if someone buys air masks in bulk quantities, (laughs) then they tag that person, right? That person is put under watch. But then we do also see people like people directing traffic. Those people have have masks and are wearing them. And I'm not sure if the government gave them that mask or not, but you do see officials actually wearing masks. So where's the pressure primarily coming from for Chinese leaders to address these environmental issues? Is it really internal or external? I think that they feel both of them and that they work in tandem. So external pressures function on a larger scale, and they help get laws created and and get them on the books. China wants to be a responsible, moving from developing to developed country. And so we see them from actually the end of Mao's regime onward becoming increasingly more involved in international organizations that help with the environment. So, and then today we see them participating in the Paris Climate Agreement, for example, committing to decrease their coal consumption and carbon emissions. So this leads to them putting laws that cap factory emissions. They really see themselves as potential leaders in green energy. They actually have they use way more solar than the United States does. They're second in the world for solar usage, and they produce a lot of solar as well. They also have really great rules about if the air quality in a city like Beijing is high, is in the red, very unhealthy levels, then what's supposed to happen is that cars get pulled off the road, factories get shut down, and so forth. Now, these aren't always enacted. (laughs) They were most recently when it exceeded 1,000, which is over double the end of the scale. It only goes Mm. up to 500. So we see them put all these great laws on the books, and that, I think, is largely due to these external pressures. But then the internal pressures are really what help drive leaders on a local level to enforce them. So China's huge. One of the biggest problems it faces is that it's a big country and it has, you know, over three times as many people in the United States, roughly the same amount of land. Uh, so it's hard to to oversee all those people in all those different areas. So when people at the local level in a particular city protest, that puts pressure on local officials to actually enforce the laws on the books. 
So when people get sick, when family members are dying of cancer, they start petitions, they start protests. If your life is at risk or if a family member's life is at risk, then going to jail for protest doesn't seem like such a bad option if you think that the protest is going to help. And in a lot of cases, you know, protesters have been successful in shutting down the building of wastewater pipelines or garbage incinerators or paraxylene factories. So on the local level, the people that are upset because they're sick, their family members are sick, that helps draw attention to the fact that the laws aren't being enforced and the locals kind of call out their local officials and and almost tattle on them to Beijing Hmm. because if Beijing finds out, then the local leaders get in trouble. So then is it primarily popular protest, small scale, or is it more organizational activism? So protests in China are necessarily decentralized. No single person or organization can ever lead a protest because they would be jailed or the organization would be shut down immediately. So ENGOs can't lead a protest. They can't organize a protest. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. The protests, in large part, occur over various different social media channels, and people are incredibly smart and creative about getting people together and conversing and communicating over multiple different platforms and using code words to get around censorship. If words are being censored, they use pictures. If words and pictures are being censored, then they use the walkie-talkie function. And things spread really quickly, really far. And many of the protests that have occurred have been you know, over 10,000 people uniting in the streets or standing on the front lawn of a of an administrative or government building in town and then marching through the streets and that gains more followers and more supporters as well. So the protests there's on average between two hundred and fifty and five hundred protests per day in China. Many of them mm-hmm. are in panel and these protests really do have an impact on calling their local leaders to task and then also drawing attention from national and international bodies to say this is what's happening here and then pressuring them to stop it. Wow. How do they sustain momentum? Protests in China work remarkably different than protests in the United States, partially because even though they are protected under the Constitution in China, just like the U.S., we have to get permits to protest. So in China, they have to get permits to protest as well, but they're very rarely approved. Mm-hmm. So when people protest, it's almost always illegal, and they show up in these mass numbers, and they actually, in some cases, in less than 24 hours, officials are acquiescing to their demands. Um, So if you look at the Keystone XL pipeline protests, those went on for years and years and years, right? And, And then just recently, finally came to a close with Obama. But in China, a lot of times there'll be just you know, five to 10 hours in or seven days in, that's a long protest before the government leaders say, okay, we'll hold a press conference. Let's figure out what we need to do about this so that we can, that we can disperse this unrest. A lot of times there's violence, people are hurt, they're sent to jail. There's pictures of bloodied faces and bloodied bodies that fly around on social media as a result, which again, just draws more attention. So protest is very different in that it tends to be more effective almost in many ways and big bursts rather than prolonged protests for years. 
So these ENGOs, these environmental non-government organizations, if it's decentralized, what kind of power do they have and how many are we talking about? There are numerous different kinds of ENGOs and there's, you know, thousands of them. The ENGOs can't participate in the actual protest and they often have to distance themselves from it. They can provide information, but they can't provide, they can't encourage people to attend any kind of protest. They actively actually probably have to discourage it because ENGOs in China have to have a government sponsor or be and be registered with the government. Mm. So there's those, these official NGOs, and then there's also a lot of unofficial NGOs that still are doing, that are doing the same kind of work, but have chosen not to register with the government for a variety of reasons. So what role do foreign relations play environmental activism in China? Given skepticism about foreign intervention, what might we think is the potential for regional and international cooperation on environmental issues in China? I think foreign relations and environmental pacts and agreements between the U.S. and China are incredibly important because we're the two largest carbon emitters in the world, though the U.S. wins per capita. And it makes the fact that we're such large carbon emitters really makes it crucial that we cooperate to reduce dependencies on coal and limit carbon emissions. Another thing that I think really might help with these cooperative efforts is an acknowledgement that learning about environmental issues is a not a one-way street. It's not all about the U.S. teaching China or the U.S. putting pressure on China. That the U.S. can also learn from China whether it be from its mistakes or successes. So we don't hear this much in the U.S., but there are all kinds of small policies in place in China that help reduce resource and energy consumption. So, for example, all the government buildings in China have a temperature, a certain temperature that they can't exceed when they're using air conditioning or heating. At every home I've ever stayed in in China, they have individual water heaters that you only turn on five minutes before you're ready to take a shower, and that saves energy. And then there's also laws in place where if you use over a certain amount of energy, then your energy costs increase. So these small things that China does, I think that you know the U.S. could possibly also learn from. And if we made it a more equal partnership and relationship, I think that that might help encourage further cooperation. Well, speaking of what we can learn from China... In the U.S., despite near-universal scientific consensus, there are still climate deniers who dispute the causes and reality of climate change. Is there such a debate in China? And what form does resistance to improving the environment in China take? In China, in general, there are not a lot of climate deniers. And part of this has to do with the fact that government officials acknowledge universally climate change. Big difference from the U.S., Yeah, different from the U.S. So, for example, the Chinese vice foreign minister, Liu Jianmin, said that he hoped, when he heard that that Donald Trump said that the Chinese had created this hoax of climate change for their own benefit and to hurt the U.S., he said that, I do hope that the Trump administration will work with China on curbing carbon emissions and that the Chinese are really committed to fighting climate change no matter what the circumstances were. So when you have your leaders saying things like that, then it makes skepticism less likely. Now, that being said, I have met a few few people that are climate skeptics, so to speak, um, but they are few. And some of it, unfortunately, comes from the fact that people in China 
sometimes look to U.S. media because they, they see it as more objective. It's not government controlled, so they'll read it. And when they read it, they see that there's climate skepticism in U.S. media outlets. And because they have credibility, that idea then carries some credibility with it. But I would say in general that it's, it's very small in China, that the government leaders really help their acknowledgement of the existence of climate change and their commitment to publicly doing something to combat it is huge in decreasing the number of climate skeptics. There are essentially no real climate deniers there, but there are still a great many who have tremendous stakes in high energy use for economic growth. Can and is China willing to curb its economic growth for health and environmental concerns? I I think that there's cause for despair and hope here. Yes, pollution is a huge problem in China. Like you factories, growth, economic growth is predicated on producing and consumption. But for me, if I don't also see hope, then there's no reason to fight. And there's clearly many people in China that see hope because there are so many ENGOs, because there are so many people fighting. And so I see hope in the protests when repeatedly in cities across China, one of the, the signs that you see all the time in protests is say no to GDP, save our home, or whatever city that it might be. But constantly people are recognizing that in order to have a clean environment, they have to say no to GDP. I do think that the growing awareness about increasing GDP being bad for the environment is making its way to the people and that it's also making its way to the governments who have the government making statements like, we will strategically control our GDP in order to, to make it more green. I do see hope and, and I hope that other people do as well so that they can continue to fight for better environmental policies and enforcement of them. Ruth, can you give us an idea of the overall environmental landscape of China? What are the most important climate, hydrological, and landscape characteristics of the country? And then along with that, what are some of the key environmental issues facing China today? So the most significant feature of China is that everything flows from west to east. All of the river systems flow off the Tibetan Plateau and toward the east from there. The other significant overall feature is that it is dominated by the Asian monsoon system. That means that the precipitation predominantly falls in the summer. The other thing that's significant about that is that China is on a gradient from a subtropical climate in the south, very wet climate, very predictable monsoon impacts, to a semi-arid, indeed very arid, climate in the north, which is at the edge of the monsoon. And so this means both that the climate is arid and also that it is very unpredictable because of the strength of the monsoon from year to year has a significant impact on uh, whether it's possible to farm crops and so on. So thinking about China today, Water has always and continues to be a very, very significant issue. The unpredictability of water, the likelihood of both floods and droughts, and now with the size of China's population, the impact of water pollution, 
and the need for water for industrial purposes as well as agriculture, also very big challenges about the scarcity of water. Climate change, of course, is a huge issue in China as it is everywhere in the world. Uh, unpredictable effects with warming, especially significant because of glacial melt on the Tibetan Plateau, which has such an impact on China's uh, water universe. The other issue that's very, very significant in China that um, I think many of your listeners will be familiar with because it's been in the news so much the last few years is the challenge of pollution in China. And that has several facets. Um, many of your listeners will have seen the pictures of Beijing um, shrouded in coal smoke. A lot of residential heating and industrial activity in China um, even today is still dominated by coal burning and by particularly dirty kinds of coal burning and um, now um, also exacerbated by the growing use of cars in the country. The other issue that makes pollution such a challenge is that uh, civil society and the rule of law is not extremely well developed. And so locally polluting activities don't really have uh, much of a counterbalance from the local population. It's hard for the government even to understand what's happening locally because there is not a clear voice from local residents and the local government up to the capital, and it's hard to have any sort of legal infrastructure that helps to mitigate the worst of those problems. So what kinds of technological and industrial changes have taken place since the communist revolution, and what impacts have these had on the environment? In terms of environmental change since the revolution in 1949, there's really a pretty sharp break between the Maoist period and the post-Maoist period. During the Maoist period, that has been um, covered in a very excellent book called Mao's War Against Nature, and the title kind of says it all. The Maoist era was a time of ideologically focused and unchecked rapid development, which led to defense forestation, erosion, um, other kinds of very serious environmental effects, as well as rising industrial output and agricultural output. Since the late 1970s, 1980, the story of the environment in China is really more or less the same as it is in any of the industrial and rapidly industrializing countries anywhere else in the world, which is rapid and rampant development, valorization of rapid economic growth and rapid uh, industrialization, also a rising environmental consciousness, both in the government and among the population. So is China's current environmental crisis then a result of this last post-revolutionary period of development, or does it have an even bigger history? And what might we be able to learn about environmental issues by taking a longer-term view? It's a long, long, long history, mm -hmm. as it is, I think, everywhere. I mean, you know, I'm a long-term historian, so I guess I always, at the global scale or, or when thinking about China, think about the very long term. In China, going back even to the Warring States period, the, the pre-industrial times, the Iron Age, there's always been a strong emphasis on the capacity and the benefit of the 
state and the people making massive environmental changes. And China, from the Iron Age onward, has been characterized by some of the most massive of environmental change of any civilization on the planet. So I always like to point to the story of Yu the Great, the legendary first emperor of China, who supposedly ruled about 2000 B.C., totally fictional person, but a very, very significant culture hero in China, and what allowed him to create China's legendary first empire was his ability to drain wetlands, build levees, build dams, and channel China's watercourses into stable riverbeds. That then allowed him to collect taxes and tribute and create a state. So the fact that that is the point of origin of China as a concept, I think, gives you a really significant idea about the deep-rooted ideological basis for significant environmental change in China. So how have anthropogenic transformations of the landscape and waterscapes of China changed over the last, say, 1,000 to 200 years or broader? So... um you know, it's very interesting to evoke all of these different time frames because, you know, of course, things look different depending on whether you set a thousand year time frame, a 200 year time frame, a 3000 year time frame. So, for instance, earlier in the conversation, I mentioned that one of the most significant facts of ecological geography is the fact that all the rivers flow from west to east. Um, however, the economic geography and the demographic geography of China is that the south is much more fertile than the north. And so beginning as early as the 6th or 7th century, there was a canal system that was intended to bring rice from the south to the cities and farms and military frontier of the north. And that canal, the Grand Canal, operated more or less continuously from the Sui Dynasty, the 7th century, until um, the end of the imperial era, pretty much went defunct with the last major imperial era flood of the Yellow River in 1855. So that's a long and old story of significant human transformation of the environment and exploitation of the existing climate and environment for various purposes. Now, there's a new south-to-north water diversion project that is of monumental scale, one of the largest scaled uh, water engineering projects that has ever been completed on the planet, which is intended to draw water out of the reservoir behind the Three Gorges Dam and transport it to the Yellow River. And it's really interesting to think of that as being an example of the continuities in Chinese environmental history over the very long term, but then also something new. What can you do in the age of big concrete and big industry? So what has been the role of rivers in Chinese history? And are there specific instances in which drought and flood defined this history in the past? So um, so the Yellow River, which is what my current research focuses on, has had um, approximately 30 major course changes and 1,500 floods documented in the historical record over the 2,500 years or so of pre-imperial and imperial history. And by the 18th century, the cost of managing 
the embankments and reservoirs and sluice gates and other systems that had been put in place was occupying as much of China's annual budget as the entire GNP of France at the same time, around the time of the French Revolution. That whole engineered water system existed more or less, not only to prevent flooding, but to keep the Grand Canal open. That is the ability to bring rice from the southern part of the country to the capital. Um, So the misery that it caused for the farmers alongside the river was not really consequential to the state. And so um, the result was um, salinification of the land, swampiness, always a high level of precariousness and risk of flooding, and ironically less access to irrigation because all of the the whole tributary and wetland system around the lower course of the Yellow River was gradually cut off. I think the big point I want to make here is that in doing Chinese long-term water history, uh, one quickly gets back to the work of Carl Wittbogel, mid-20th century, and his theory of the hydraulic civilization. And that theory essentially goes that the Chinese imperial state, because water management was so important, that became the basis for state power and what he in the mid-20th century termed oriental despotism. That term is obviously, you know, long gone. It's wrong because it's pejorative, and it's also wrong because it assumes that state power was more centralized than it actually was. It assumes that there was not any kind of bottom-up pushback and that there was not sort of horizontal factionalism among uh, officials from different localities. So Vogel didn't get right the idea that there was a despotic state. On the other hand, he absolutely got right that especially in North China, dealing with the Yellow River had a significant impact on the organization of state power and the relationship between the state and the society. So political power in China and rivers have always been very, very closely linked in Chinese history, and I think continue to be today. Your research looks at the full length of the Yellow River. So I'm curious to know, why do you take the Yellow River uh, at its complete length? And what does that help us to understand about China's environmental problems? There's been a tremendous amount of writing about the Yellow River. Um, However, that research has almost exclusively focused on the floodplain and the propensity of the Yellow River to experience floods and droughts. However, the same water flows from the Tibetan Plateau to the ocean. It's one river. And yet, in terms of the contemporary historiography and absolutely in terms of the imperial political approach to the river, it's always been treated as two completely distinct rivers. And the reason for that is that even though it's one watershed, it passes through two regions that are very different from each other politically. So the lower course of the river, the floodplain, passes through um, really the old political core of China, China's demographic core until early modern times, ethnically Han Chinese, a densely populated region of the country with big cities and villages and farmers. 
the upper course is, is on the plateau, the, the Tibetan plateau. It's sparsely populated. It's at the edge of the Chinese world. The middle course passes through a region called the Less Plateau, and this is a region of a very, very fine, powdery soil. The less soil is excellent for agriculture, and when it's covered with grasslands and trees, is not at all prone to erosion. It's at the borderland between a region of agriculture and a region of nomadic pastoralism. So that means that it has also been the military frontier between China and China's pastoralist neighbors, um, the Mongols, the Tunguts, the Uyghurs, the Great Wall passes through the middle of the Les Plateau, for instance. And so in any time historically that there has been conflict between the Chinese Empire and its pastoralist neighbors, the Les Plateau is exactly the place where fortifications are built up and troops are stationed. And when that happens, the ground cover is disturbed on the Les Plateau. And the result at that point is very serious erosion. Well, where does the erosion go? into the Yellow River, down to the lower course of the river, to the floodplain. And the thing that previous scholarship has really not engaged with is where it is that all those floods come from. And the answer is that it was not prone to flooding in time immemorial. It only entered a regime of frequent flooding about a thousand years ago, around the time that the massive fortification and military buildup occurred on the Les Plateau. One of the recurring themes in our conversation has been the relationship between political power and climate change and management. So looking forward, does it seem possible to you that China will be willing to curb its growth uh, for health and environmental concerns? And could they possibly be in trouble if they can't find a solution? That's not clear. And again, I think that's not clear in China, and it's not clear anywhere in the world. Because all of the existing regimes that have been around for a few decades or more are ones that have staked themselves on economic growth, and they've staked themselves on a notion of economic growth and on conditions for economic growth that coexist with a fossil fuel economy. Thinking specifically about China, this is a regime that does not have a tradition of mass political participation, civil society, constitutional rule of law, and so on. And I think the conventional wisdom is that it, the implicit bargain between the government and the population has been give up a dream of political participation in return for political stability and rapid growth. And that has worked very well since the post-1989, I mean, the post-Tiananmen uprising moment. The question that watchers of contemporary China, I think, are really wondering about is what the future is of that regime if rapid economic growth diminishes. It, it may be something we will all see in the coming years and decades. Climate change is uh, an international phenomenon. And so I'm curious to know what are some of the international factors that may affect China's relationship to the environment and also the realistic possibilities for international cooperation on climate change in the future? Personally, I'm a pessimist about the future of international cooperation. 
And uh, frankly, I'm a pessimist about the future climatic and political stability of the planet. I'm, I'm, I worry a lot about what the future holds, not just for China, but for all of us. And, um, you know, even something like the Paris Accord, which was signed to great fanfare a couple of years ago, is too little too late. And even so, is not really being enforced. What I hope for is local and community resilience in the face of environmental catastrophe. And I think that's something we've seen in Chinese history, that even when there are um, monumental floods, lengthy droughts, significant mortality, the civilization as a whole has survived. Local communities and extended families have supported each other in their survival. And I also stake my uh, my optimism on the idea that during a time of rapid and unsettling and unpredictable change, we will get also art, new forms of culture, and new ways that people are articulating their position in the world. For instance, I was just looking at the work of Chinese photographer Yao Lu, who makes these huge hyper-real photographs that are intended to look like Song Dynasty landscape paintings, but they're made actually out of giant piles of trash and detritus. And it's a way of taking the aesthetic continuity in China and using that as a way to comment and reflect on living in a world of industrial pollution. For me, as a historian of the long term and the long term relationship between the biophysical world and the cultural world, I bring all of that to my sensibility for thinking about the present. That is, the knowledge that humans have, have brought about significant environmental transformations for thousands of years, um, you know, in a way commensurate with whatever kind of technology we have access to at that time, and also that we have been resilient, that we have forms of state power and forms of organization and creativity that really um, transcend and respond to the kinds of changes that we make. And that's something that's hard to see looking at only shorter term and smaller scale history. So I hope that that's something that everyone, policymakers, scientists, the general public, as well as historians, can bring to their thinking about Chinese and world history. We will wrap it up on that note. Thank you so much to our three panelists. From the University of Arizona, we have Dr. David A. Peets, a professor of modern Chinese history, UNESCO chair in environmental history in the Department of East Asian Studies, and director of the Global Studies Program. From Idaho State University, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication, Media, and Persuasion, specializing in visual rhetoric and Chinese environmental activism, we have Betsy Bruner. Thus, we have Ruth Mostern, an associate professor in the School of Social Sciences, Humanities, and Arts at the University of California, Merced, and soon to be an associate professor of world history at the University of Pittsburgh. She's a specialist in spatial and environmental history focusing on imperial China and the world. 
Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative of the Goldberg Center and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brenna Miller and Jessica Blissett. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website at origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.